Oh, somebody around here has a book on the image of God. (laughs) Can you tell us, give us a good foundation. What is that? Is, am I the image of God? Are you the image of God? Who who is, what's that mean? Yes, we are Bruce. We are all the image of God. Every human being is the image of God. There are no exceptions to that. Uh, The biblical text says clearly male and female are God's image. And so if somebody tries to tell you, as someone did just a couple weeks ago on my YouTube channel, uh, tried to tell me I was wrong. Women were not the image of God. <laughs> um, you just need to send them back to Genesis 1. I think it's 27 that that says male and female. And this is, I think, such an important concept for us to get. As you said, the first chapters of the Bible are so foundational for everything else. Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we true the verse of Genesis 3.16, and we discover that God didn't curse Eve or Adam or limit woman in any way. This is Media Monday. I'm Bruce C.E. Fleming, Executive Director of the True 316 Foundation. TRU316.com is our website. And we are the home of the Eden Podcast. And we have a very, very, very special guest with us today. My co-host, Joanne Hagemeyer, is with us. And Joanne, would you introduce our guest? That would be my pleasure. Thanks, Bruce. We're here with Dr. Carmen Imes, who is passionate about helping students and other lay people engage the Old Testament and discover its relevance for Christian identity and mission. She is both known for her books, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, and Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. Carmen has appeared on over 100 podcasts and radio shows and releases weekly Torah Tuesday videos on her own YouTube channel. She writes for Christianity Today, Politics of Theology, and The Well. She's also a frequent speaker at churches, conferences, and retreats. Today, Carmen is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University's Talbot School of Theology. Carmen's academic journey began when she and her husband served as missionaries in the Philippines with SIM International, reaching out to ethnic minorities. Today, Carmen loves introducing students to the rich insights of the global church, and we are so glad to have you with us, Carmen. Oh, thank you, Joanne. It's a joy to be with both of you. Because Joy and I were missionaries, you know, we got married and and off we went to Africa and off you went. Mm. I'm going to ask you now, tell us how you ended up in the Philippines, how that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great question. So I, I had felt a call to mission since I was a child. When I was eight years old was the first time God stirred that in me. And and throughout the rest of elementary school and into middle school felt a, a strong sense of call. So I went on my first couple mission trips in high school, short term trips, and then went off to Bible college where I was going to study Greek so I could be a Bible translator. And I ended up um, in the course of my college education, discovering that I had a love for teaching. It was as plain as the nose on my face, but I was too close for it, close to it to see it. And so it was partway through my college years that I realized I really want to teach. So that kind of shifted my attention away from Bible translation. Um, But I still wanted to go overseas. So that was one of the prerequisites for finding a spouse (laughs) is that he had to be willing to, to serve God overseas. And And my husband, Daniel, was willing. And so we approached SIM basically open-handed. We didn't feel a sense of call to a particular country. We just felt called to work with Muslims. And and we didn't know where to do that. And I had the I had a few things in my head that, you know, I thought if I were if I were able to make my own wish list of a country to live in, 
it would be a country where it's green. That's really hard to find in the Muslim world um, where women can teach Bibles, mm-hmm. like where women can teach. That's going to be hard to find in the Muslim world yeah. um, and, and where we can be with Muslims. And so we came to SIM with this sort of impossible list, fully expecting we'd have to lay some of that down on the altar. And as we sat there with SIM's placement coordinator, he said, you know, I actually have an idea. And he pulled this brochure off his shelf for the team in the Philippines, a green country where a woman was president or had recently been president. And uh, so women did all all manner of things in the Philippines and where there was a sizable Muslim minority. And that was the focus of the team's outreach. And we just thought, wow, this feels like it was handmade for us by God. So we, we ended up only being there for two and a half years. Um, it didn't turn into a long, long-term thing, but I am so grateful for those years as hard as they were, because God taught us so much about uh, the beauty of other cultures and just the experience of living somewhere cross-culturally and, and wrestling through learning a language was something that expanded our minds and our hearts for, for other people. So if I said, Ikao Masama Akamabudi, would, would you know that? I'm Ikao Masama Makamabudi. Akamabudi. Akamabudi. Mabuti is good. Ikao is you. Uh, Masama is that bad? Yeah. So my dad, <laughs> my dad was there in World War II, and he he oh. was he was floating in the in the bay, and he he had a cook, and he asked the guy, "If I get in trouble on shore, can you tell me a saying that will make people like me?" <laughs> and apparently, oh. he, it's "I'm good, and you're no good." Oh my goodness! And it was, wow. and he did, he did get uh, in trouble, and he did use the line, and the p- local people laughed and laughed and thought oh, that was God. so funny that they escorted him down to the beach and made sure he got off all right. <laughs> oh yeah, you're bad. Yeah, yeah. So you're bad, and I'm good. I I hear it now. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And that crazy. We have, we have certain phrases that we have said to our kids through the years, <laughs> like, "What are you doing?" And so our kids could recognize that as, as Filipino, but they don't know why we say it. <laughs> we're, anyway. I'm trying to talk Tagalog, Joanne. So that's, that's what we're Tagalog. So, so. well, we can yes. talk Lingala too. I'll teach you some Lingala oh, too, if you'd I like. I don't know um, any Lingala. Yeah. And Bolingo, that's the main word, Bolingo, which is love. love. Bolingo. All right. That's a nice love word. Love of God. Yeah. So you, you, uh, you knew the Lord early on mm-hmm. and you discovered what your spiritual gifts were teaching. Mm-hmm. And then you, uh, but you wanted to study Greek, but now you're an old Testament professor. How do you explain yes. that? Interesting, huh? Yeah. So I started off with Greek because of course, in every, uh, unreached people group or language where they don't have the Bible, they, um, translators start with the new Testament sure. they often do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and I'm not sure that's the best idea, but that is what people do. And so uh, that was why I chose Greek. I started studying Hebrew right after I graduated. Um, I didn't have time in my schedule to do it while I was a student. But as soon as I graduated, I used my free audits for alumni to take Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the course of my time in Bible college, I really came to love the Old Testament even more deeply than I already did. I I loved it as a kid, but but I saw so many more dimensions of richness to it. And I realized, I think my, what I realized was that the church needs the most help with the old Testament. 
There's so many resources based on the New Testament. Most of our sermons are on the New Testament. Most of our pastors learn Greek, but not Hebrew. And so the place where we're kind of all thumbs and we're not sure what to do with the text is in the Old Testament. So I felt like I could make a bigger difference uh, if I if I landed in the Old Testament. How did learning Hebrew, I mean, I'm sure it did, but how did it change the way you read familiar stories? Hmm a good question i i i do think that we have certain ruts that we fall into with english words of making certain assumptions so i'll give one example uh the hebrew word eretz is the it means land or ground and when you say land and when we say land in english um or earth sometimes it's translated earth so if you say earth if i say earth what you're picturing is a sphere that rotates and orbits the sun, right? So so you have certain expectations with earth. And so every time the word earth happens in the Old Testament, we're picturing a sphere, this spherical planet that we live on. But ancient Israelites didn't know they lived on a sphere. When they said Eretz, they were thinking of the, the flat land that they farmed and where they uh, pastured their flocks. And so I think sometimes we make assumptions about what a text means based on what pops into our head when we hear a word. And when you when you read it in Hebrew, it forces you to slow down and consider things from the perspective of an ancient Israelite. And it sort of begins to unmake some of your assumptions. Uh, so when it says in in Genesis, I think it might be chapter 47, during the famine in Egypt, it says all the world came to Joseph to buy grain. Well, it's not the all the world as in the whole globe that, you know, the Incas were not getting into their reed boats and crossing the ocean <laughs> to come get grain from Joseph. It's all the known world, which is the land that these people live on and, and that they travel as nomads, etc. So um, you could multiply that a thousand times with all the different words that, you know, we end up misunderstanding like the word nefesh in hebrew mm -hmm. which is often translated soul but it means it doesn't maybe ever mean soul in the way we mean soul when we say it in english as the immaterial part of our body that you could separate from our from our physical body but it it has to do with the whole person and so you in the in the old testament they could even talk about there being a dead nefesh and they mean a dead body is laying there um, it's, they're not talking about a soul. They're talking about like talking about us as whole people. So sometimes we, without meaning to import a platonic dualism into our reading of the old Testament that separates between uh, spirit and body. And it just doesn't work. If you're reading it in Hebrew, nefesh has a much more uh, tangible meaning than how it is conveyed in English. I mean, as you're talking, my my mind is just going on fire because it seems as though the Hebrew writers of the New Testament, they're writing in Greek, mm -hmm. but I would mm -hmm. think possibly part of them is still kind of a Hebrew mind. Yes. So when they're saying psucha, mm -hmm. possibly they're thinking nefesh. Yes. You know, that it's the same idea of just your person, your yep. alive person. I don't yep. know. what. Yeah. So in the Psalms, when it says, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's mm -hmm. not speaking to the interior part of me and saying, you know, I want my mind or my spirit to bless God, but it's calling the whole person, um, even mm -hmm. physically to bless God. 
And I do think that the New Testament writers, as you said, they're, they're Hebrews. They're, most of them are Jewish. They've grown up steeped in Jewish culture and Hebraic ways of thinking. And so, yes, we need to study what a Greek word meant in its Greek context, but probably equally as powerful is the Hebrew Old Testament context. So really, when you are emphasizing Old Testament, you're a professor of Old Testament, but that's informing New Testament it all is. the time. And that's what I had noticed when I was a student. Um, our professors at the school where I attended were, would all teach both Old and New Testament. And some of them mm -hmm. had gotten PhDs in Old Testament and some in New Testament. And it seemed to me that those who had focused on the Old Testament handled the whole Bible really well. And those who had gotten PhDs in New Testament were a bit out of their depth in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. So the, I felt like it would help me to be more competent with the whole Bible if I focused on the whole the Old so Testament. So let me bring up icon or, or however we want to say it. Uh, in the New Testament, people think they know what image of God means. And they look mm -hmm. at the passage and they go, well, a man was of the image of God, but the woman wasn't. And the way that we think about what we're here to do. So the other really profound thing about recognizing that women are also the image of God is that right after God identifies male and female as his image, he says what images are supposed to do. Huh. And it says, so that you may rule over, over. creation. Mm -hmm. Male and female are the image. That's very clear. What do images do? They rule over creation, which means male and female are given the task by God to rule over creation. My I, I think what's really striking about that text is that we are not told to rule over each other. When it mm -hmm. lists what humans are supposed to rule over, it's all the animals. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's the, the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground, but it doesn't say each other. Mm -hmm. We are... We are to each other co-rulers and co-collaborators. We are not supposed to be dominating or subduing each other. So the horror that the first woman felt when the man comes along and does two things. One, he says he rejects God's rule over him. And he says, I'm going to rule over myself and I'm going to disobey. Mm -hmm. And then he says, oh, and in addition, I'm going to usurp God's place over her and I'm going to rule over her. Yes. And she goes, wait a minute, I have a ruler. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm your ruler. Mm -hmm. And all yeah. the, the ugliness of these bad relationships that, you know, people yeah. are dealing with is right there is reflected in, in the sin of the Garden of Eden. It is. Yeah. And, and what's so striking to me, Bruce, and I think um, you, this is something you think a lot about, is that for most of church history, the church has in intended and sought to replicate the power imbalance of Genesis 3 instead of the collaboration and co-rulership of Genesis 1. And it feels so bizarre to me, as I've spent more time in this passage, it feels so bizarre to me that we would prioritize the asymmetry, which is a result of the fall, a result of, depending on what you want to call chapter 3, I know different Faith communities use different words. So is it the fall? Is it the rebellion? Is it the failure to mature? Is it, you know, whatever really bad decision? And we we prefer to call it the attack. Okay, the attack. Mm -hmm. So that that so we could call it the attack or the really bad decision that Adam and Eve made mm -hmm. in the garden mm -hmm. um results in a kind of fraught 
their relationship is now fraught with difficulty. I spoke in chapel on Eve for Women's History Month. And as I was working on that message, it occurred to me because I had just written this book, um, Adam and Eve were supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. And the word subdue is a fairly violent word in Hebrew, kabosh, which is where we get our English word kabosh. <laughs> and, and they're supposed to guard the garden against intruders. And then in chapter three, we have an intruder and the intruder comes in and casts doubt on God's goodness and tries to set them on a path of uh, self-actualization outside of God's command. And and I I got to thinking about how, how often people have spoken of Eve as stepping out of line in that passage by by engaging in conversation with the serpent. And by entertaining this interaction, and it was a it was wrong for her to listen to him. But the problem was not that Eve was too outgoing, and that she should have just hung back and let Adam do all the leading in that in that scene. The problem is that she didn't kabosh the snake. That was her God given task as the image of God. It is to subdue the earth, to cast out any intruders into the garden. So Adam and Eve together should have done that. And instead, together, they just capitulate to his message. Although at the beginning, she did correct him, didn't she? You know, she mm, did. Yeah, she did. First, first phrase, she said, no, you got that all wrong. Yeah. So she starts out by correcting him. And then he just pursues his attack. Yeah. And, and Jesus calls him the father of lies in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And instead of reinforcing her conversation, Adam, who was there with her, was yeah. silent. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes people point to Adam's silence as the problem because he ought to have been the one leading. And I would say he ought to have been collaborating with her. They should have together yeah. put him down. So, yeah. Joy talks about uh, an interesting pattern. Maybe you've seen this in the words to the serpent tempter god says uh, six different things in hebrew mm. because you uh, all the days of your life mm. uh, cursed it is there's mm-hmm. six different things mm-hmm. and when he gets to the man because you key you know all the days of your life coal you know uh, cursed yeah. it is there's the same six pattern to the serpent tempter to the man and none of those six elements to the woman interesting so she makes a, a big distinction. She says, we've got a first degree rebel, the guy who chose on purpose mm. to rebel and disobey. Yeah. And then we have the gal who was a second degree eater. Yeah. She didn't choose on purpose. She thought she was doing three good things, mm. but she was deceived. And so God treats her like not like a first degree murderer, mm-hmm. but more like a second degree murderer. There's a difference, like the mm. cities of refuge, mm-hmm. you know, right. compared to the, the bad guys. Yep. Yeah, so which is why which is why I think Paul says in First Timothy 2, it wasn't Adam who was deceived. It was it was the woman because because she didn't hear the command directly from God. She got it secondhand. So she was deceived in a way that Adam wasn't. He knew full well what he was doing. Uh, and which people is use why that as should... a, they say this is bad. See how women are bad. And actually he's yes. saying, no, that women are not. This it's is worse. <laughs> it's worse for Adam. Yeah. And this is why we need to let women learn. Uh, yeah. That's that's what I think Paul's yeah. doing there. So we're geeking out here, Joanne. You wanna you wanna jump in here? And, uh... <laughs> well, I love it all. I mean, I've done deep dives in this too, and it's um as we heard recently um, from another guest, people keep going back to Genesis. Mm-hmm. It is the core. It's the foundation. It 
And when you, when you start talking about people relationships or even relationships between God and people or between people Mm -hmm. and the, all, everything Mm -hmm. goes straight back to those first three chapters and, and understanding them is going to have a profound effect pretty much Mm -hmm. on how we understand everything else. So that's, that's why this true 316 project is such an important project because it's giving us our foundation. And and I love that you have this book about being in God's image Mm. because it really does matter. It does. It matters. I was thinking about what you were saying, giving back the dignity of the human body as God's expression of God's Mm -hmm. self on earth. And even though we're talking about men and women, we're also talking about people of different cultures. Yes. We're talking about people with disabilities. Yes. We're talking about tiny people who've only just been born. Yep. Or haven't been born yet, but they have a human body. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think this really has, if you, if you, if you nuance or, or clarify that the image of God is in, is tied to our human embodiment rather than to a particular capacity, then unborn children are every bit the image of God that we are because they have a human body. We, we don't have to wait for them to reach a certain level of intelligence or a certain level of independence to be able to qualify. Um, and and in the, by the same vein, someone, someone who experiences disability is not less of the image of God. They have a human body. Someone in their later years who experiences profound dementia is not losing the image of God because they're still embodied. And so they still have all the dignity that God imbues in them at creation. And I think this just has such profound implications for ethics. Mm -hmm. All of the hot button issues of ethics today have to do with uh, our human bodies and what can we do with them and who who counts as worth saving or uh, worth treating and should we just eliminate people who don't produce enough you know there's just so many so many uh, directions we could take this mm-hmm. it all yeah. comes back to these three chapters it does god lifts us up that was his idea he he, he made us and he mm-hmm. he did not step on us some people think that genesis 2 was the good god and genesis 3 was the the mean god Mm. and uh no we got the grace of god in both places yeah one one thing i love too about the doctrine of the image of god is it does exalt us as the crown of creation but it but it also caps us from arrogance Mm. because we're not our own thing we're the image of god so we're here to represent God and deflect or reflect glory to him rather than absorb it for ourselves. And so that, that shifts things. Um, you know, so, so many of the problems of our world have to do with um, asymmetrical human relationships in which some people arrogate to themselves the glory that should be God's. So it like, um, it, it caps us on both ends so that we're right where God wants us to be. As you were talking also earlier, I was thinking about how just in a few sentences, you undid our love affair with hierarchy. Oh, right. excellent. You did. If I could do that it, in a few sentences, it would be a good day. <laughs> it, it, it just is, was astonishing to me, even your, your really potent questions. 
Why do we as Christians and as the church, why do we cling to hierarchy when from the very beginning it was never God's idea? Well, so yeah. far we have listeners in 120 different countries. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And so they're, they're listening. I don't know how they're, it's either in English or they're, they're picking it up through translation some way mm -hmm. or not, but we want to spread this, spread the word out. God loves you. Yes. You are in his image. Yes. He's got plenty of grace for you and the power of the spirit. Yes. And we want to just spread it out to all women and men around the globe. And the sad yeah. thing is that we have, the United States has often exported a different message, a, mm -hmm. a message that is uh, racist and sexist. And so I'm so glad that you have listeners all around the globe who are hearing what the Bible really teaches. You know, I, I'm th I think of um, those who were trafficked, uh, Africans who were brought to the new world as slaves and were taught Christianity by their enslavers. And they were able, when they came to the scriptures, they were able to accept the message of the gospel in spite of the the fact that they first heard it from people who didn't understand it well enough to live it out. Um, mm -hmm. And so the Bible has been spread in a lot of places um, in forms that are not going to lead to full human flourishing. But if you read the Bible for yourself, and if you read it carefully, you can see that God's plan is for every human being to participate in his work. Uh, none of us is excluded. Amen. 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 Thank you, Dr. Carmen Imes, for being on the Eden podcast. We were just thrilled. Thanks for having me. This yeah, thrilled to be uh, here. All right. Thank you. We'll see you. True 316 Foundation is the home of the Eden podcast. Join us for $3.16 a month or more. Let's chew the verses on the key passages on women and men. Go to true316.com slash partner.